thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today's dialogue is ocean acidification, or how carbon is killing the ocean. And my guest is Vicki Osis. Hello, Vicki. Hi there. Hi. Um, you're calling us from Oregon, right? That's right. That's right. I'm sitting here on the Oregon coast. Oh, I'm envious. Um, Vicki Osis is a retired professor of fisheries and wildlife from Oregon State University, and she's worked for 31 years as a marine education specialist in the Ocean Sea Grant Program. Uh, Vicki Osis has developed K-12 education program for the center, and presented many workshops and training programs for K-12 teachers in marine science. Through OSU, she developed and managed a Master's of Science program in education with an emphasis on marine science for K-12 teachers. Dickiosis has received national and state awards for her work in marine education. She currently is retired and for the past two years has taught an online climate change workshop for teachers. She lives in a small farm on the central Oregon coast with her husband, Lehman. Did I say that right, Lehman's? Well, it's, uh, it's a Latvian name. It's hard to get it right. It's, we call it Lyman's. And if you okay. did it the Latvian way, it would be Lymans. So <laughs> whatever works. Well, we don't want to offend your husband, and we're glad that you joined <laughs> us on the program. <laughs> uh, so you and I go back for years, more than I cared. Well, you said earlier, about 31 years, um, with the National Marine Education Association and trying right, to get right. people engaged in learning about the ocean uh, in schools and in informal learning centers. And NMEA has a uh, Internet dialogue on the line called Scuttlebutt, where educators can post questions and opportunities. And recently uh, you posted something that got me talking about ocean acidification, and then suddenly both of us were talking to the extent that we decided that we'd better get together on this broadcast of uh, Moyer's Environmental Dialogues and talk about ocean acidification and how carbon is killing the ocean. That's right. Um, it's a real important issue. Yeah. So I um, wrote on the, um, I, I kind of like, I've been thinking about this for a long time, as, as, as we all have, and uh, so I kind of like without this manifesto of, you know, I'm calling on marine educators and colleagues in education to put aside their climate change saber-rattling and put down their our flags of global warming and pick up, you know, systems thinking about to save the ocean from uh, death by acidification. And, you know, we need to understand and know more about how ocean acidification is worse in many ways, than is global warming and climate change. Although they're interrelated, 
um, the you know the impacts of ocean acidification uh, are are just frightening. And you know, yes, it's a law. It's a fact according to the laws of thermodynamics that when atmospheric greenhouse gases increase, the average temperature of the planet will go up. We know that. Okay. It's also Here, a biochemistry. Yeah. Let me stop you just a minute. Here's where I disagree with you. I think they're both really important issues, global warming as or the climate change. Let's get away from the warming. Climate change as well as acidification. Acidification is happening faster and it's going to be pretty dramatic. And it's, it's, it's yeah. right up there in the front. Right. Uh, we agree that it's, in the, it's, it's near the four and, and my saying, yeah, right. we'll get the to why I'm doing that later on, but um, it's also a biochemistry fact that, you know, when ocean acidity changes by just one unit, whole ocean ecosystems will collapse. Right. And, uh, you know, never in 300 million years, according to geological records, has the pH dropped by more than 0.6 of a unit, with the possible exceptions of some very rare and catastrophic events in Earth's history. So... Um, I'm, I'm really alarmed about this, uh, but the person that really brought it home to me was Alana Mitchell, uh, who had the good grace to come on to this program, Moyers Environmental Dialogues, um, earlier in the season. And so one can, you know, download that from this uh, internet program. And Alana is the author of Seasick, Ocean Change and Extinction of Life on Earth. And Alana, in my opinion, uh, writes as well, if not better, than did Rachel Carson about the ocean. And I, I just want to take a moment and read a short passage from Alana's work that um, framed the question in a non-science, the problem in a non-science way that helped to bring home the severity of what's going on. Uh, the, the author, Alana Mitchell, introduces us to a scientist at the National Center of Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, named Joni Kleipas. And she writes, Kleipas remembers when she first recognized the seriousness of the pH issue. She was in a meeting with Langun in Boston in 1998. They were talking about carbon dioxide and how it affects the concentration of carbonate ions in the ocean, a topic so arcane and seemingly irrelevant that the group's members hadn't even heard of it at the university. It certainly wasn't on the scientific radar. Nevertheless, they pulled their information and did some back-of-the-envelope calculations. Once they figured out how low the carbonate ion concentration would fall if carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere kept rising, they realized they were looking at a marine Armageddon. Clypus ran into the bathroom outside of the committee room and threw up. <laughs> it's pretty serious, Clypus is quoted for saying, that it's pretty serious when you're messing around with calcifers. Uh, she explained that the fossil record shows that when carbonate saturation falls, some creatures that need calcium become extinct. Would humans survive if coral reefs, and calcium shell plankton and other sea creatures that need shells disappeared. Alana Mitchell concludes in her writing, we have no idea what other forms, other life forms that we depend on would vanish 
if plankton were to die out or dramatically decline in numbers. And we still don't know the degree humans are symbionts with all these creatures we are endangering. Clypes and others who work, who are working on this issue of ocean chemistry, have unwittingly embarked on the ultimate human quest to find out not where we came from, but where we are going. It is the great endpoint of human imagination. And Alana Mitchell goes on to ask, how do these scientists on the front lines keep going? Langdon points to the great strides that humans have made to stop acid rain and heal the Great Lakes, the banning of DDT sparked by Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, the attempts to repair the ozone hole. Clytus has hope, too. Clytus's point is that we only feebly understand how some of these great Earth systems work. The planet remains capable of tossing us some big surprises. In the ocean, we understand even less. We don't comprehend enough to know how great the risks are. In fact, the further along the logarithmic index of knowledge we get, the more we understand how little we know. Isn't that the case? So I was writing this online, and, and Bob Roche from the New England Whaling Museum wrote back and said, yeah, it's really hard to teach oceanification because of the chemistry. And, and this is the challenge that, um, where we need educators to pick up on the science and make it accessible and translate it because although the scientists themselves don't understand enough, much of what they do understand isn't getting into the public discourse of the nation here. So I'm really excited Vicki, that you would respond to this because you're one of my marine educator heroes that, you know, early on when we were uh, getting our, our National Marine Education Act together, so <laughs> you were there. In the, in the, were you at the founding meetings? Yes, I was. I believe I, I was pregnant the... with one of my kids at that time, too. <laughs> it took place in Rhode Island, and then there was the one in California. I was at both. There you go. And um, so here we go now with a new, um, a new marine education challenge, which is to convey the importance of, uh, you know, PV was something we didn't really think about much in ocean. We thought it was pretty well buffered out and stuff. Uh, yeah, well, we you were really talking about how difficult it is to, to uh, explain it to people. It's really not that difficult. You know, if you show them a, a carbonated soft drink, that has carbon dioxide bubbled through it. It's acidic, so it's, that's the same process happening in the ocean. It's absorbing that carbon dioxide, and it's turning acidic. But the real impact is that the logarithmic scale, that's the difficult to, a thing to understand. You know, the pH goes from 1 from acidic then up to 10, where it's really basic. But even one point on that is a big, huge change, that 1%, uh, 1% point drop on the, the pH scale is a 30% change in the acidity of the oceans. That's what is scary, and that's not too difficult to explain to them. I mean, you don't have to go in. Well, let's repeat that again. It's a 31 unit. A, a one 30%. unit change on that pH scale makes a 30% change in the acidity of the ocean, and that's what's happened. You know, you look at, oh, well, it's only dropped a point. Big deal. Well, it is a big deal because 
the, how logarithms work, and that I can't explain. But I no, can no, no, say a one-point yeah. drop is 30%, and that's, so, I think, even fifth-graders can get. Yeah, right. So Deborah Williams up in Alaska has taken, has gathered from people children's teeth, and she can put the teeth in, in regular water or sea, regular acidity seawater, and then she puts it in carbonated, clear carbonated, you know, soda water. Yeah. And um, that's about a point, a unit difference right. in acidity. Right. That's about what we're and, seeing in the ocean change, yeah. And the teeth that are in the soda water, even though it's clear, it's not full of Coca-Cola ingredients, you know, it's clear, <laughs> come out all pocked up and, and um, you know, yeah. from the acid. Well, I've seen some, some labs where they just put some vinegar on, um, which is an acid, onto a uh, oyster shell, and you just watch the calcium get bubbled away. It, it, it really takes that calcium out. But the, the really vulnerable part of the ocean is the, um, the parts of the food chain. So let's walk through the food chain of the uh, ocean so Please. people, uh, non-oceanographers, understand it. At the bottom of the food chains are the tiny plants, which are called phytoplankton. Think of it as the grass in the pasture. Okay, the cow eats the grass. You eat the cow. You've got a food chain. Well, in the ocean, you've got the phytoplankton, the little plants, and they'll get so thick off the Oregon coast, you can see the water's discolored with it. And then feeding on them is the next step up. It isn't the cow in this case. It's little tiny shelled animals. Most of the zooplankton are microscopic, and they have these little delicate shells. If you've ever taken a, a plankton toe on a boat, you put it under the scope, you've got these little fleas darting around under your microscope, and they have these little tiny shells. And that's what the acid can destroy. So there's the second step in that food chain. You wipe that out, you're going to wipe the little baby fish who are going to be feeding on them, and the big fish that feed on the little fish are gone, and then the big uh, sea lions and the dolphins that feed on the big fish, they're gone. You break that food chain, you lose a life in the ocean. That is scary. And some of those zooplankton are, you know, little, you call them fleas, things like zooplankton that always stay as zooplankton, as uh, plankton. But some of them are, are young, very young, um, more interesting animals, right? Yeah. Some of those are the larval stage of many of the other animals, too. Um, like crabs, and like crabs and that... oysters, and um, a number of the shellfish. Yeah, abalone have a free swimming stage. They're microscopic, but they have that little shell that they have to develop. So if the acid has taken the calcium out of the water, and that's what's happening with this acidification, it removes the calcium that's been dissolved in the water. There's nothing for them to build their shells with, and uh, we first got onto it and realized it was a really a big problem here with the oysters. Here in the Northwest, we have two big oyster hatcheries. They spawn the oysters, they put them in the tanks, and they raise the babies. Well, the baby stage is microscopic, but they're trying to build their little tiny shells. Well, these hatcheries are just pumping their water in out of the ocean, and it's being depleted of its calcium by that uh, acid, that 30% drop in acidity. So there's not enough calcium in the water for the little babies. 
So if you really want to get a little bit more complicated, here on the Northwest, we have another phenomenon along our coast where real well, well, wind wait, goes. wait a second, Vicki. Vicki, excuse me. So what's happening to little babies? They're just getting thinner shells? They're just, they're or... just dissolved in the water. The shell's gone, they they're die. They're dying. They yeah. die. And the way they found it is uh, these two oyster hatcheries had a total loss of their larvae. A couple of two, it's two years in a row. And maybe three or four years ago did it happen that they really um, got on to the problem. So it never happened before. So they called up the OSU researcher, Oregon State University researcher. He came over. And by that time, we were aware of the drop in uh, uh, acidity, the increase in acidity in the ocean waters. So he took them back to his lab. He ran a variety of tests on them, tested the water for the acidity, uh, looked at other things in the water that could be pollutants that could be causing the deaths. And we know what pollutants there are out there. So he's looking, are they increasing? Are they the same as they've always been? But the only variable he found was the acidity. And mm. so when then when they put some lime in, so just, I don't know if it was lime, I'm getting a little off thin ice here, but they neutralized the water. They brought the acidity levels down and made it right, more neutral. Right. Yeah. Then they survived. So it was pretty clearly the acidity problem. So now, that's this is alarming for a guy in Boston because next to Beacon Hill, we have the Union Oyster House and all our best politicians, and, and I like oysters too. You know, all, And John F. Kennedy had a place in the restaurant where he'd go every Sunday afternoon and, and study, and I assume eat his share of oysters. So those of us who uh, like eating oysters are a little more alarmed about what you're saying than we were, say, talking about pteropods or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> Your favorite uh, food item here is going to get in short supply. If this, if, but but think of it this way, though. What's going on in that hatchery water? Remember, we've got out here in the ocean, we have this old plankton. We talked about the little tiny delicate animals with little tiny shells. It's just a little picture of what's going to be happening to that food chain out in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. So um, we're going to take a, a quick break and be back with Vickiosis to talk about ocean acidification and what is going on in the ocean now. <laughs> Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.org. 
www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Vicki Osis about ocean acidification and how carbon is killing the ocean. And Vicki was just explaining that the oyster farms out on the Oregon coast have been losing uh, the, the oysters when they're at their smallest stages, their youngest stages, um, because the water is, the seawater is natural, is un, uncontrolled by them becoming more like vinegar. Is that a good way to put it? Good way, yes. And uh, so how are we able to have oysters from these farms? Well, it's hard to grow oysters if you can't get their larvae to stay alive. And uh, so what one oyster grower did in the Northwest, he moved his operation to Hawaii. And there the, the acidity problem is, well, not the acidity problem, but... Uh, they don't have upwelling in uh, Hawaii, which is one of the, the other players in this because it also brings depleted waters to the surface that uh, and has taken the calcium out. So our calcium waters are depleted here because of an, a process called upwelling. I think that's about all our listeners need to know. So we had a little bit of a double problem for our oysters here. Yes, and, and the, 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 the storyline is that Carbon is from the atmosphere is going into the ocean, right. and when it gets in the ocean, you just don't see more parts per million of carbon in the seawater. Instead, it mixes with sulfur and makes the water more acidic. And um, the acidic, the acid of the water uh, affects greatly calcium. So we're talking about a calcium problem, even though it's driven by carbon. Right, and the right. calcium of these little nopoli or, or small young stages of the oysters is being dissolved. It's like it's going fizz in the ocean. That's right. And, uh, and the buildup of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is continuing. It's getting worse. We are not cutting back on our carbon dioxide emissions. We have methane melt. We have... Um, melting in the Arctic that's releasing methane. And methane, when it hits the air, turns into carbon dioxide. So we're getting more and more carbon dioxide, which means more and more carbon dioxide is going to be absorbed by the ocean, which will continue to increase the acidity. So if we've had a 30% drop already, which is huge for a big ocean like that, it's going to continue and worsen. A 30% drop means that it's become 30% more acidic. Yes. It's dropped and down on the pH scale to the more acidic side. 
and there's a direct link between the atmosphere and the ocean. Exactly. When the atmosphere exactly. goes up in carbon, some of that carbon is literally forced into the into the ocean through the surface waters. And stuff. Yeah. Well, at that ocean surface interface, uh, the ocean surface and the atmosphere interface, that, and the mixing, you know, the water is, is being turned up into waves, and that mixes the air into the water, and that's how the uh, oxygen or the carbon dioxide is absorbed into the water, and oxygen is absorbed into the water as well. So it's a yeah. mixing area. But the oxygen levels aren't going up, so we're not seeing an effect of increased oxygen going up. No, it, it's the carbon dioxide that's, that's causing the acidity. That's the one that has us most concerned. And, and how did the, um, how did such acidity uh, be discovered? Well, there's a good story behind that. Um, NOAA has research vessels, and they had one of their big research vessels was out on a cruise coming back in across uh, the Pacific, back in to its home port of Seattle. And as it was going along, they they routinely take water samples, and it went down to the lab below deck, and. Um, they look for a variety of things, and they, they happen to have run a pH test. And the technician looked at it, looked at it again, and said, "Hey, wait a minute, this this can't be right." So he called the scientist. Now you better take a look at this. So they looked at it, and they and they saw that thirty percent drop in acidity, and it it took them by surprise. They just hadn't. They knew carbon dioxide and water will make acid, but they had not expected this big a drop in acidity. So when they got back to Seattle, instead of going out and announcing to the world the oceans are acidic, they said, we've got to explore this further. They're carefully going to do science as science is done. So they sent out word to, to the other nations in the world that have research vessels, and they said, when your research vessels go out, no matter what, what ocean they're in, no matter where they are, take water samples and run the pH on it and then report them in to us. And so for that year following that, all the, all the research vessels, this would be Chinese, Australian, Swedish, uh, French, Italian, whatever ocean they happened to be in or sea, they took their water samples, and lo and behold, every one of them came up with a 30% drop into the... Oh, my gosh. So that... So it wasn't just a local thing the red happening went in on, some And that's when the alarm bells started going off. Then when they had all that confirmation that was going on, and the only link they could put, get put it to was the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So I first heard about it. There was uh, the head of the fisheries department at uh, NOAA came down to Newport, where I live, and gave a seminar. And when he was finished with his seminar talking about how the acidity, how they measured it, and how they careful they had been about it and what the ramifications were, he finished his talk with said, this is scary. This is very scary. Yeah, we think of the ocean as being indestructible, being the ultimate vastness. Yeah. And to think well, that this guy is, is, uh, was head of the fisheries department, so he knows the ramifications to the fisheries. And... They're part of that food chain. The, the big fish we're catching is the top of that food chain. And if you break that that second layer, if those little zooplankton are going to be depleted, there's not going to be enough food there to support fisheries at the level that we are accustomed to. So the last article I read, they think by before 2020, we're going to see some major uh, expressions of the damage to the food chain and drops in fisheries production. And this is 
in the space of a decade. That is a huge, rapid change. So the, the article said expect some, some, major, some major changes by before 2020. Yeah, nine years. And, yeah. And, you know, I think you, your Oregon story of oysters is one of the first clear indications of that kind of catastrophe happening. Right, Where right. it was just it's, catastrophe for a group of oysters, but um, yeah, but oysters are are not just a small part of the food chain. Plus, it happens to be the critters that we're harvesting, as opposed to the ones that we're not looking at. So we don't know what's happening to a lot of us. Right, right. Like I say, it, the, the oyster hatchery is just a little mirror image of what's going on in the food chain out in the ocean. You know, they're putting in the the plant the. Uh, the, they they brew up the phytoplankton. They have big jugs of it in those hatcheries, and they put that into the tanks to feed the larval oysters, which in the ocean would be the zooplankton. And it's just it's just a window into what's happening to the food chain out in the ocean. Oh my gosh! And there's no you, you, there's not enough lime in the world to start neutralizing the world's oceans. They're huge. No. And There's nothing not we can do. Of, the only way we can control it is cut our carbon dioxide emissions. Yes, we must reduce our carbon footprint, and that will lead to less carbon being shoved into the ocean. That's right. So, along, and, so let's go to the um, food chain again. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. the whales. Everybody loves whales. The little krill that those whales are feeding on are like those baby oysters. They're little, small, shelled, free-swimming little animals in the water, and the whales with their baleen go through the water scooping up just tons of those krills for their food. So you can see if those krill are killed off by the acid, if they lose their shells, they can't survive. You're going to greatly deplete and reduce the amount of krill available. We're going to lose whales as well as the bigger fish feeding, who also depend on the other uh, levels of the food chain. And coral reefs. Don't forget coral reefs. Well, they're wait, wonderful the ecosystems. And they're hold on for the whales. Excuse me. Hold on for the whales for a second. Because okay. the, 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 the fish-eating whales aren't going to get off any easier than the krill-eating whales. Yeah, because the fish have to eat the zooplankton. Or at least right. the baby fish do, and then the little fish are eaten by the bigger fish, which are eaten by the so far on, on, on up the line. We just finished a huge campaign on the eastern seaboard to better manage the menhaden fish. So the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Council has set up stricter guidelines and catch limits for menhaden fish. And menhaden, as you know, are a small forage fish in the herring group. And yet they're so numerous that they're considered the most important fish in the ocean because they're the food for all kinds of commercially valuable fish, like striped bass and blue fish right, exactly. and tuna fish and so forth. And so we finally got the regulations in, but what, the, what you're saying is that there's a good chance that those menhaden are going to have trouble getting enough zooplankton if they eat the bottom of the food chain like that. Because exactly. of ocean acidification. Think, think of the, the, the ocean food chain in about four or five steps. You start yes. with the little plants, then the little zooplankton that are feeding on the little plants, then feeding on the little plants or the little baby fish, 
and then the baby fish grow up bigger, and then they're eaten by the bigger fish, the menhaden, and then the menhaden are eaten by your big uh, top predator fish, which are from the, our fisheries. So you, yes, you break well, the link, you you lose your fish. Right. We're we're talking about um, how forcing carbon into the ocean from our global warming and, and for, we need to reduce our carbon footprint so that less carbon goes into the ocean so there's less death and destruction in the ocean. And we'll be right back after this break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're talking with Vicki Osis. Uh, professor of Fisheries and Wildlife from Oregon State University, and uh, we're talking about the food chain and how that uh, it is very long in the ocean. There are many levels of animals eating animals on up, and um, I had the good fortune to spend some time with Roger Payne, who tells of swordfish being the top of the food chain so that it, to create a, a... Roger figures that it's seven levels up, seven trophic levels up the food chain. So to have a pound of swordfish steak requires about 10 pounds of the next fish. So it's an order of 10. So you get uh, 10 to the seventh power in diatoms needed for a pound of uh, swordfish steak. And Roger figured out that that's about four or five dump trucks full of uh, diatoms to create a one-pound swordfish steak. So uh, 
Dickiosis has been explaining how that uh, we have now the seawater is becoming more acidic, more vinegary, uh, due to the carbon from the atmosphere being forced into it. And with the water being more acidic, the animals at the bottom of the food chain are dying. And uh, Roger Payne's point is that, you know, we need an awful lot at the bottom of the food chain in order just to have a pound of, um, of these expensive uh, fish foods like swordfish and tuna fish. Um, Vicki, uh, who else needs um, protein from the sea, and, and how does this all tie together with what we're talking about? Well, we were talking about fisheries. Well, sometimes fisheries, you know, the tuna, um, the salmon out here for us, salmon's awfully big, they're, they're uh, not a staple in our diet. We have them maybe once a week. But you go to third world countries or countries uh, with, with shoreline much poorer than the U.S., the fish is their main source of protein. So they, it's going to be a disaster for them if those fisheries are taken out. Uh, it's going to be a real hardship for many people on the planet. Again, the U.S. is so rich that we, we can have beef instead of our, our fish, but these people don't have that choice. So this is yes. really... I can't, I can't emphasize how important. And people are eating more and more seafood and less beef as, for, for health reasons as well. So there's, you know, healthy... This is, you know, seafood is a healthy food to Right, eat. right. Fish oils are and supposed to be good for your heart, yes. That's, that's yes. Awesome. And, you know, vitamin E is being harvested mostly from Menhaden and these small fish that aren't making it to our table, but um, are a reason driving part of the fishing industry. And uh, we and certainly like to much, compliment. Uh, excuse me, I interrupted, but think how, how valuable our fishery industry is. I mean, on the coastal states, it, it's, it brings in huge money to those states and employs fishermen, seafood processors. It's, it's an important industry. Yes, and the whole, you know, ocean recreation industry of going to the beach with your family um, could be impacted when the ocean is no longer as healthy and it may be that a visit to the beach is no longer as pleasant. Yeah. Well, the coral reefs, like I say, they have calcium. They are calcium-built, and they're major tourist attractions to go uh, visit coral reefs. And if they're in... uh, they're getting hit by the acidity, too, and if they deteriorate, there goes the coral reef tourist industry yes. as well. So That's a really good point. And the, the problem, poor coral reefs are being hammered in so many directions that the scientists are arguing about what's the worst problem, and it's <laughs> right. not helping the coral. Thing. Of them with corals, from runoff to the acidity to the hot water events that's causing the bleaching, they're, they're getting... Uh, Real issues. Yes, well, we're working, the Ocean River Institute is working with people in the British Virgin Islands to um, recycle glass bottles by breaking them up and then help the cement company use glass instead of just straight cement to cut down and to put down pavements and surfaces or retaining walls to cut down on the sedimentation that's running out. It looks like in a rainstorm, sometimes the island's hemorrhaging out onto the coral reefs, and that um, is really bad for reefs. Right. Um, but well, we have to do everything at once. We can't just um, do one thing. And I heard one ocean advocate being interviewed on a TV program, and the announcer said, well, how do you prioritize which problem to address? And I felt like laughing and asking the, the, the uh, interviewer, 
Well, when you walk into the bathroom, how do you prioritize whether to pick up the toothbrush or the hairbrush? You know, I don't care which order you pick the things up as long as you're clean at the end of the day when you come out of the bathroom. You know? so <laughs> as long as you address the issue from as many angles as you can. Exactly. You know, it isn't a question of prioritizing. It's a question of getting it right and doing everything that we can to stop damaging the earth and the ocean. And in the case of carbon dioxide, it's the electricity production, all those coal plants we have. It's when you jump in your car and you take a long car trip, the carbon dioxide coming out of the exhaust of your car. And this is going on all over the world. And we all yes, have to no. work together to, to get this under control. Now, the, 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 the silver lining to our government doing virtually nothing about climate, about the carbon footprint, and states doing just a little bit, is that the doing fell upon communities. And communities did what they could do best in their own community, and in so doing, demonstrated that many little things add up and do make a difference, and it's much more effective than just talking about what's the number one problem to address, and then we can go home thinking we've solved the problem. Right, but it, it, it's don't underestimate, underestimate the size of the problem. To switch off of oil, to switch off of coal, and get right now solar and wind, we're looking to them, but they don't have the energy intensity that the coal and the oil have. But we've got to put the effort into getting other forms that are clean and non-carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere. Absolutely. You know, America is 4% of the world population and 20% of the carbon footprinting problem. And there's got to be ways that we can improve our consumerism so that we don't have to spew out so much carbon in the atmosphere. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, a 20% reduction is a 20% reduction, and, you know, 30% and so forth. We, we need to take all the methods we can um, to, you know, yeah. not just wait until we can get zero production. Right. But I, there is some it. light at the end of the tunnel. I'm, I'm reading about... Um, the research on solar panels. They've been expensive and they are not energy intensive, but they're making some real strides in getting them more efficient and cheaper. So hopefully they'll, in a few years they'll have those on the market so we can start um, oh, yeah. using really our own produced the, energy from the sun. It's re there's really been a pickup in the last few months of utility companies understanding uh, that uh, solar power is the way to go. And in Massachusetts, we suddenly figured out that, oh, my gosh, you've got all these closed landfills that are kind of hazardous waste sites. We can cover them with solar panels. Oh, good and idea. So that, yeah, you know. And so now some of the more she-she communities are worried about their viewscape with, you know, um, solar panels on it. But it's like, hello, you know, and plus you've already got methane gas out there, so you can just put a little converter on the funnel that's leading that out and stuff. So, yes, so if you love the ocean, and especially if you love eating oysters like I do, um, you should um, reduce your carbon footprint, right? Exactly, exactly. And to take it one step farther, we've talked only about the ocean. The uh, climate change is bringing more extreme weather events. I grew up on a farm. I know what it takes to produce a crop. You are, your crops are damaged by these floods, these heat waves, these... Uh, extreme weather events that we're having, that's not good for farmers. 
So not only are we knocking off, lowering our food production from the ocean, but our farmers are struggling. Look at the, the problems Texas had. Their Texas farmers are on their knees from that huge, awful drought they had and heat wave. And then all the floods on the Mississippi and the Missouri, the best farmlands are in those bottomlands that were flooded. Our farmers are took it on the uh, took a real hit this year because of so much extreme. And if it gets too hot, those heat waves, corn shuts down when it gets to 100 degrees. So it's it's we're looking at it's um, two big problems, and both coming from carbon dioxide and the heating, and in the case of the ocean, the acidification. And the problem isn't due to some nefarious industry misbehaving. It's we can help by, you know, not turning on the lights. We don't need to. We can help save both farms and oceans in our everyday activities. Exactly. It's weatherizing your house, um, driving less, get more efficient cars. The electric cars are coming out. And even though uh, they say, well, they'll be run up my electric bill, but those coal plants, they run them through the night. They don't shut those coal plants down at night. They're still producing electricity. So you can plug your car in at night and still be better off than running your car on oil. So that's my pitch to people. <laughs> at least start, do what you can. Everyone has to do what they can to help. Yeah, and it doesn't, it shouldn't require having to buy a new bunch of new stuff. You know, you can do stuff without having to spend money. In fact, most corporations are finding that when they, they try to be more sustainable and green, they end up saving money, so they want to do more because of that. Right, right. I imagine the electricity some of those industries use, too. Yes. Yes, we'll be right back with Vickiosis after this break. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. green 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about ocean acidification and specifically how carbon is killing the ocean. So, Vicki, let's review. How is carbon killing the ocean? Well, as we increase the concentrations of carbon dioxide in the air, and we do that when we uh, drive our car or we use electricity from a coal plant, we are responsible for putting more and more carbon dioxide into the air. And as the air and ocean interface come together, the ocean has been absorbing that carbon dioxide. And when it is absorbed, there's a chemical reaction occur that makes the water more acidic. It produces acid. It turns into uh, water plus carbon dioxide will form carbonic acid. And it's the same kind of acid you have in your soft drinks because they are carbonated. They pump CO2 into the uh, soft drink to make it bubbly. And if you test the pH on it, you'll find it is indeed acidic. And that's basically what's happening in the ocean. And the problem with acidity in the ocean is little shelled animals are in trouble because the acid really does two things. One, it will dissolve the calcium out of the shell and kill the animal. And the other is that it, it removes the dissolved calcium out of the water as well. Over the years, um, animals that have died, the calcium seeps back into the water, and that acid will remove it. So it's depleting the calcium supply as well as eating away at the shells of the animals. And if you're a little tiny animal, like the larval, uh, larvae stage, the baby stage of an oyster, they're microscopic. You have to put them under a microscope to see them. But there is a little tiny shell on there, and it's very vulnerable to getting um, dissolved by the acid. And um, yeah. like, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, like we pointed out in our discussion, the, the first uh, we knew the oceans were turning acids acidic by the NOAA research vessels taking water samples, and then it reared its ugly head. First of all, the effects of the acid in the oyster hatcheries out here in the, the northwest, a big hatchery in Washington and one in Oregon, both had total loss of their larval uh, oysters during the spring. And um, they had no oysters to, reach, to send out to the oyster growers to start new oysters growing in their fields. So it was quite a serious problem for them. They called on the scientists. They looked at it and concluded that it is the acidity in the water that was dissolving the shell. The little animals were <laughs> dissolving in the water and total loss of the larvae. So you can't have oysters without baby oysters. So yeah. if you're an oyster lover, uh, think about carbon dioxide emissions and uh, take action. Well, yes, we now have a, a law in Massachusetts, a state law addressing uh, global warming, and uh, uh, I they had hearings for it all around the state, and I went to the hearing on Hyannis on Cape Cod and said, my only concern about global warming is 
but the acidity in the ocean is going up. And my concern there is that I love eating fried clams, and I want to be able to have fried clams. I'm afraid if we don't pass this legislation, we're not going to be able to eat fried clams anymore. And that certainly got the attention of everybody there. And I also want to thank you, Vicki, for going into all the details. Um, I started the program by saying that I think um, acidity of the ocean going up is a worse problem than is um, the temperature change and, and the uh, global warming climate change kind of talk. And, uh, Vicki, and of course, I think that's so because I'm talking about for my stomach. I'm worried about clams and oysters and, um, and the marine life. And I'm not in touch. And so Vicki argued that point, saying that, you know, global warming is a big problem. And uh, she has spoken to the, the how it's affected farms and so forth. And I don't see that suffering, so I, I'm more biased in my approach. But we both agree that the remedy is the same. It's the carbon footprint. So what can people do to help reduce, to save the oceans and to save the farms from being devastated by droughts and storms? Um, what, what can people do? Well, walk around your house. We are the uh, causes of it. Uh, when we use electric appliances, when we use um, electric lights, when we drive our cars, um, the electricity, a good part of our electricity in the U.S. comes from coal plants, and coal plants are really nasty. Um, they are big emitters of carbon dioxide as well as the coal dust is pretty toxic too. But look around when you buy a new appliance, Buy a very energy efficient one, and if you even if you're not ready to buy a new appliance, get a newer one that is more energy efficient. Turn out your lights. Um, look for any kind of way of of cutting down on your energy usage. Drive less. Ride a bicycle. Carpool. Um, uh, there's and when you buy a new car, look for the energy efficient one. They've got hybrids. I drive a hybrid that gets 60 miles to the gallon. Um, they're also coming out with the electric cars, and that will use electricity, but like I told, said just a while ago, they run those coal plants to produce the electricity at night, and there's little use of that electricity in the middle of the night, so you can recharge mm. it then and not increase it. So there are things we can do, and we and vote. Vote for politicians who say they will address this issue. That is the best action you can take. Yes, and tell your politicians that you care about it so that they take a stand on it when they're running for office. Uh, that's very important, that it be yeah. part of dialogues, that yeah. people understand that the economy and the saving the environment or reducing the carbon footprint are all together, that when we um, emit less carbon, it turns out we actually make money. And uh, one way that happens is... When people recycle instead of throwing stuff away, it saves costs in, um, if you're recycling paper, it saves costs in producing the next newspaper and so forth because you've recycled it instead of having to harvest new. And, of course, the energy transport is just amazing. Uh, there, you know, there's talk about trying to get more shipping on the ocean rather than have, you know, trucks on Route 95 going up and down the eastern seaboard if, you know, if that could be hauled by train, it would be the same as like a thousand trucks. But uh, a barge and barges can carry a hundred trains worth of stuff. So, what the Coast Guard is working on getting transport, you know, um, offshore, so that we have less, um, you know, infernal combustion machines running up and down the highways. 
It's, it's going to take work in every angle we've got to get this under control. It's going. It's not going to be an easy job at all. And I think. Vicky. Yes, Vicky, we're out of time, so I have okay. to thank you very You're much welcome. for taking the time to talk about ocean acidification. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. And thank you all for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Rob